0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening
1: right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Maybe you don't think about this or maybe you really wonder about this. This one's going to be a little iffy on that front because sometimes you're on transit, you're standing next to people and you wonder how many people in here actually put on deodorant this morning. How many people in here actually brush their teeth at least twice a day? Well, there's actually a new survey that was done by Vancouver Magazine on this and looked at the hygiene habits of Vancouverites. There are a few surprises in here. Our Raji Sohal actually talked with Alyssa Haroes, who's a writer and associate editor at Vancouver Magazine, about this piece. Have a listen.
2: What set you off to ask these questions? it was something that people would like to read and hopefully people would share. And frankly, people shared a little bit more than I uh, wanted them to. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no kidding. You asked about people's flossing habits. What did you learn?
2: Uh, out of the respondents to our survey, there there were 658 of them. um, And 121 answered basically never to the question, how often do you floss? So that was that was 18%. That was a shock to me. (laughs) Me too. I think it was a shock because I was expecting that even if even if people don't do it very often, I would I would assume most people would say a few times a month just because they were lying to themselves or to me. So to to admit that I thought was very brave.
3: <laughs> sure, sure. I would deny it if if I fell into that camp. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <me too.
2: laughs> I also saw uh,
3: one question about what people do around toilet seats?
2: Oh, yeah. So I also asked about um, toilet seat covers. So there's sort of paper ones that they have in public, in some public restrooms. I was curious um, if folks use them or not. Um, And so, yeah, we had uh, 29% people said they always use them. 25% said they sometimes use them. Um, And 46% said never. So about half people were saying if even if those are available, they don't use them.
3: Okay. And then what about washing hands?
2: Um, washing hands was one of the uh, to me like the more um, comforting answers so um, we had 95% say they wash their hands for the recommended 20 seconds but that was um, kind of uh, adding together the people who said always and the people who said occasionally or sometimes so we had 47% said always 48 said occasionally and then only 5% said never that they never wash their hands for the full 20 seconds which I think is um good considering the, the time we live in.
3: Okay. Yeah. Maybe this was one thing where we, one category where we did. Okay. Yes. Overall. And then there were Vancouver hygiene confessions and I don't want to choose a really disgusting one because yeah. some of these were a bit shocking. <laughs> uh, what's one you could share with me that still surprised you?
2: Um, one that surprised me, actually, because I was like, I don't think it's that gross. And I think it's actually kind of a good idea was someone who said, I reuse my dental floss until it breaks and I have to throw it out. Um, not saying I'm planning on doing that. But I did think that just in terms of like a sustainable uh, and sustainability wise, I thought that it was an interesting idea.
3: Um, Definitely eco points there.
2: But again, (laughs) very shocked that somebody would admit that. Again, I guess they were all anonymous respondents. For sure. um, For sure. I had, yeah, there were two options. One of them was completely anonymous. The other one was they could answer. I mean, I'm not going to share, but I I was reading them. So (laughs) when you respond (laughs) on Instagram, I could see. Um, Another one that I thought was funny was just someone who was talking about stealing the body wash and shampoo and face wash from their gym.
3: This one to me was a shocker because you're only in that shower for a brief amount of time because you were ostensibly on your way to work or something like that. And so Mm -hmm. you're not there long. So the fact that somebody would bother to take the time to squeeze out the shampoo or soap product, I guess, because they're siphoning it off into their own containers, right?
2: Exactly. Yes.
3: (laughs) Well, points for, I don't know, resilience. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Really getting the money's worth out of the gym pass, I think.
3: And what was your overall favorite answer you came across
2: that's tough I mean there was there were ones that I like there were ones that I didn't share um like I was reading I was reading some of the answers and gagging um um, I thought that one that was surprising and divisive was um washing your feet I thought that that was um pretty funny so I asked whether you specifically wash your feet so you like take the soap and wash the wash your feet like you would other parts of your body or whether you just would consider like the soap running and water running down the body. Gravity sort of does the work for you. And um, yeah, 57% said they did wash their feet and 43% says say, said, no, I just let the water and soap run over them. Okay. Um, <laughs> Not sure I if can't cleaning, but yeah. yes,
3: no, fascinating responses, Alyssa. And you ask questions that, uh, gosh, I don't even think I could even come up with. So <laughs>
2: th- thanks for that. Oh, no problem.
1: That's our Raji Sohal talking with Alyssa Heros from Vancouver Magazine about her latest piece on hygiene habits of Vancouverites. I have a feeling the washing the feet one is going to be the one that people talk about there because, one, it's safe. You can talk about that. It's not too gross, so you can talk about that. And people are going to have different answers. Maybe some people actually stop and wash their feet in the shower. Maybe others think, no, no, the soap running down there and, get you know, that's all fine. That's as good as it's going to get. Uh, if you want to weigh in. Yes, you can. Simi at CKNW.com.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I think a lot of us are way more aware these days of credit card fees than we were before. And that's because the law has changed that now allows businesses to charge us the credit card processing fees as opposed to them having to eat that as part of their business. And boy, it is an eye-opener. I know a couple of places myself where they have switched over and I thought, you know what, is it time to find a new you know, provider if they're going to charge me for this kind of stuff now? Well, over the next few months, actually, Ottawa is going to be convening many of these big credit card companies for a series of negotiations. And the point is to try to reduce fees, especially for smaller businesses. And if they don't reach a deal, government says that maybe legislation will be in the cards. Let's talk more about this. Susan Krzynski-Robertson joins us now, retailing reporter for the Globe and Mail newspaper. Susan, thanks for being with us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: So what is going on here? Why is the government taking this step?
5: Well, basically, this has been a long-running discussion. And when I say long, I mean long. We're talking years. We're talking, you know, over the past decade, really, that this has been a topic of conversation. And what has happened steadily over that decade is that there have been negotiations between the government and the big credit card companies to lower the fees charged to businesses, the swipe fees, basically. The businesses have to pay every time you use your credit card. Um, And business groups have been exerting a lot of pressure on the government over these fees, which they say are far too high. Um, And so basically, the fees have come to a point now where the number you hear a lot is 1.4%. Um, and it's important to mention that that's an average number and that it's not the entirety of the fees that retailers are charged for using credit cards. That's just the what's known as the interchange fee, which is what they pay to essentially to the banks that issue those cards. Right. But there are other fees on top of that that they pay. They pay for their terminals that they use to take those cards. They pay a small fee also to the credit card companies. They pay all kinds of other things. But all in all, what it means is that retailers are paying the price for the credit cards that we use and for the rewards that are attached to those cards. The value that we get back doesn't come out of nowhere. And it doesn't actually come from the credit card companies. It largely comes from the businesses who pay those, those charges.
1: Wow. So even though there's a move to make us pay some more of those fees, there's even more fees on top of that is what you're saying.
5: That's right. The largest fee by far is the interchange fee that I mentioned, the fee that's paid to the banks. And that 1.4%, by the way, that can really vary. That's not a set number. That's just the average. So um, depending on the cards being used, some of those premium cards, you know, the ones with really good rewards, higher elite status, those can charge... 2%, 2 2.4%. So it can really, really vary. And so over the years, what's happened is these business groups have said to the government, this is too much, this has got to come down. And we don't have the negotiating power to make the visas or the Mastercards of the world budge on this. We need your help.
1: Okay, that is so interesting to me, Susan. So you're saying that these elite credit cards, which people always want to have, because there's great benefits to having them, though? That's not paid for by you and, you and I or by the credit card company. It's the businesses that end up paying for that.
5: No, even those annual fees that you might pay if you have one of those higher reward cards, you know, the hundred bucks a year, a couple hundred bucks a year that you might pay in annual fees, that does not pay for the cost of the rewards points that you get back. Um, those have to be subsidized somehow. And what retailers say is, hey, we're the ones subsidizing that. And that's become more of a problem. So yes, the average fee has come down over the years. But one of the things that business groups point out is that they are paying more overall in these fees right now because so many more of us are turning to cashless payment than ever before. And this is something that was really accelerated over the course of the pandemic. When, you know, a lot of us started shopping online more often, we started wanting to eliminate, you know, touch heavy modes of payment. So we went to cards a lot more and that habit really stuck. So for example, according to a group called payments, Canada that tracks the industry, there were 4.5 billion transactions made with personal credit cards in 2016 And that total was about $408 billion. By last year, that had risen to 6 billion transactions worth a total of $509 billion. So you can imagine what that does to what retailers are paying overall in just the dollar figure of those fees, even if the percentages remain the same.
1: No kidding. That is crazy. Susan, what has been the response from the credit card companies here?
5: Well, the credit card companies say that they already have worked to reduce fees and that they feel those fees are appropriate. They point out that... You know, credit cards are a secure form of payment, that there's all kinds of data security processing that has to be done on the back end in order to make this work. And that, you know, one of the the benefits of credit cards um, is that retailers don't have to count cash, which does also cost them money, by the way. You know, when you pay in cash, that might slow down the checkout line. You have to use a staff. Time at the end of the day to count up that cash. You can sometimes do cost money in counting errors. Sometimes you have to pay for an armored truck if it's taking it to the bank for you, or you have to take it to the bank yourself. So, cash isn't free either. And so, they point out that, you know, what we have done simplified the process. All your accounting is done for you instantly and automatically, and we take care of the security. And so, it's natural that there are fees for that. That is their response. What retailers say is, Well, debit cards do the same thing, and we don't pay nearly as high a fee for the use of a debit card as for a credit card. So what the industry groups say is these fees could be lower. It's simply that there is this network system of rewards that makes the cost of credit cards much higher.
1: Wow, this is so interesting. Susan, thanks for filling us in on this.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Appreciate that. Susan Krasinski-Robertson is a retailing reporter for the Globe and Mail newspaper, writing about credit card fees. Big discussion going on about that that could definitely impact us. We want to see those credit card fees come down. Benefits certainly want to see that, for, or b- banks, I should say, definitely want to see that for sure. If you want to weigh in, send me at com.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So as you've been hearing about in the news, and as we were talking about this morning, the B.C. government is trying to implement some new measures to tackle the housing crisis. As the first part of this, municipalities are going to be required to set housing targets and rental restrictions on certain properties and being lifted strata restrictions in particular now if you want to weigh in with your thoughts on that like how do you feel if you live in a building that right now has strata restrictions about you know not being allowed to rent things out how do you feel about those you know being lifted potentially you can email me simi at cknw.com do we think these are going to help Will this help people get more housing in Metro Vancouver? Joining us now is Peter Waldkirch, who's the director of Abundant Housing Vancouver. Good morning, Peter. Good
6: morning. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. What do you think about these suggestions?
6: Well, I think these are good first steps. Now, on their own, these aren't going to solve the housing crisis. We're in a very deep hole. In Vancouver and across B.C., we're suffering from a massive shortage of housing. But at least this is a sign that the provincial government is not going to leave this in the hands of cities any longer entirely, at least. And it's time for the province to get involved, which I think is the right step. Housing is just too important. and The housing crisis is too big for it to be ignored by the provincial government. We need the provincial government to be hands-on with the housing crisis.
1: Right. But this is still going to take, I mean, years for people to actually see a difference, don't you think?
6: Well absolutely. Um, They have announced some measures such as increased funding for social housing and for rental to buy uh, rental housing to preserve them which should help people in the short term. But the reality is we have been underbuilding housing in British Columbia and Vancouver for decades. Since the 70s or the 80s housing construction has far lagged behind housing need in our cities. And so the reality is we're not going to solve this overnight. It's going to be a major project to, to resolve this crisis which is why we need all hands of government on board we need city governments working to increase our housing supply and we definitely need the provincial government leading the way by setting example and by using carrots and sticks to get municipalities to do their job
1: right but what kind of housing are we talking about here peter like what's going to make a difference for people
6: Well, right now in Vancouver, uh, especially, but across BC, we are suffering from an overall shortage of housing. There just isn't enough. Now, there's a lot of things that go into the housing market and the housing system to get it to work properly. We need investment by senior levels of government in non-profit housing and social housing. But we also just need a lot of housing at the core. There's sort of a game of musical chairs going on. If there's more people than there are chairs, there's going to be people left out, left out of the system. And that's what's happening right now. There's just not enough chairs, not enough homes for all the people that want to live in Vancouver and in other cities across B.C. You know, the uh, the Premier yesterday pointed out that last year, British Columbia accepted over 100,000 New people moving to B.C. from across Canada and from other places in the world. Those people need homes. We're not building right now anywhere close to the amount of homes, let alone for our current people, let alone for all of the people that B.C. is welcoming. We should be welcoming these people. This is good for our economy. It's good for jobs. It's good for our society and culture and arts and education, all that other stuff. But we need to build homes for people. And right now, the shortage is so massive that all housing helps.
1: Okay, so what would you have liked to have seen? Was there something that you felt was maybe missing?
6: Well, the premier has promised to more directly intervene in municipal zoning regulations. So zoning is how cities sort of divide their land up and say, oh, you're allowed to build this here, you're allowed to build that there. And right now, cities mainly use that power to ban apartments across most of their land. In the city of Vancouver, about 80% of Vancouver's residential land bans apartments entirely. Now, for the core of an urban area, for the largest job center in the province, I think that doesn't make sense. Now, the premier has committed to making it so that you can build at least three homes, three units on a single residential lot across the province. Um, He hasn't moved forward with that yet. He's promised he's still looking into moving forward with this. This is only his first steps. So that's what I would like to see. I would like to see more direct intervention in zoning, in municipal zoning, because that's really where a major bottleneck for housing construction is right now, is that cities just make new housing illegal, and they haven't done their part, cities, to resolve that housing crisis and so i think the province needs to take a bit of a firmer hand in making sure that cities do their job
1: okay so does this put does this do you think put us on the path to doing that because undoubtedly peter there will be some municipalities who don't like this
6: absolutely you know other vancouver and british columbia aren't the only jurisdictions experiencing a housing crisis california is sort of one of the leading examples and there the state level government for several years now has been involved in trying to reform things and one thing we've learned is that cities can be extremely resistant to new housing they uh, you know they sort of their local politicians can win elections just by catering to nimby's right by resisting all change in their neighborhoods so it's going to be a bit of a cat and mouse game i think with the province one thing we've learned but i am optimistic uh the main thing for me is that the province has realized that this isn't something that they can just ignore that it is something that hurts everybody the housing crisis hurts every aspect of life in british columbia from our jobs to our, you know to our friends to our families so we need action and so that's why i'm happy to see that the province is at least taking a first step
1: yeah is this enough of an incentive do you think like will municipalities now think all right well we better get on this
6: Well, I hope so. And one of the things we've learned from what happens in other jurisdictions is that when senior levels of government, when the state government, for example, sort of um, starts to get involved, it empowers the good local politicians, the local politicians who do want to make a difference, who do want to use their powers to help resolve the housing crisis. It helps by setting minimum standards, the senior levels of government can help those good politicians do their job. But there are going to be the bad ones, the, the, the politicians who, local politicians who just want to fight off a new housing and maintain the status quo. And that's where I think we'll need to see some direct intervention where incentives won't be enough.
1: All right. Well, Peter, thank you for your time this morning.
6: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on.
1: That's Peter Walker. who's a director of Abundant Housing Vancouver, talking about the proposals which will likely get passed this week to tackle the housing crisis here in BC. Now, if you want to weigh in with your thoughts, there is a lot more, as Vaughn put it earlier, carrots and sticks for municipalities here to get to work on getting more housing in their communities. How do you feel about that? Simi at com.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Interesting numbers from Statistics Canada, report showing that the national homicide rate has gone up for the third year in a row. And nearly one quarter of those homicides in 2021 were connected to gangs. That is a high rate of gang related violence in our country. Well, joining us now to talk about this is Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Kim, I'm guessing these numbers don't surprise you.
4: No, they don't surprise me at all, and I would think that it's probably a bit higher uh, because different police agencies define a gang or an organized crime group differently, and a lot of murders are related generally to the drug trade, and the drug trade is connected to gangs and organized crime, so I don't think all drug trade murders uh, would be classified as gang murders, even though obviously there's a connection.
1: Right. It also struck me that pretty much right across the country, when they have that category of gang related murders, they were all up. BC was just one of many provinces, including Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, that all saw increases in this.
4: Yes, for sure. No, it doesn't surprise me at all. I just look at the local gang landscape and uh, these organizations that started here in BC have moved across the country and have become a lot more sophisticated. Uh, So I'm not suggesting BC gangs are the reason for this increase across the country. Having said that, we've seen BC gangsters killed in other provinces over the last couple of years.
1: Right. So do you think this is just a pattern that's very similar to what we saw here in BC that is happening everywhere else now?
4: I do. I mean, we obviously have to keep watching the numbers. I think one of the uh, points that Stats Canada makes is that overall the murder rate in Canada is still very, very low. It doesn't match that of other countries, including the United States. However, it is really concerning. Uh, Now, they, they said the national... Uh, murder rate of gang murders is almost 25%. But if you actually look at the numbers for 2021, and that's the year, uh, that's the latest year in this uh, document that they released yesterday, in BC, it's actually closer to a third, it's 31%. When you look at at 2021, the 39 of 125 B.C. murders uh, last year were gang-related, so that's quite a bit higher than the national average.
1: So then how does something get classified as gang-related murder, and when wouldn't it be classified as such?
4: Well, I think it's, you know, like I said, it varies from law enforcement agency to law enforcement agency. Uh, I I believe it would be when they think the motive is uh, someone's involvement in a gang or criminal organization and someone would have to be identified as as having that affiliation, right? So I think the numbers are probably higher. Uh, We don't know some of those details about the differences between agencies and how they classify uh, what is a gang, what is a criminal organization. And, you know, we've talked about this to police locally over the years because, you know, say someone is a gang involved, as a result, they have a firearm, and then they get into a domestic dispute and someone ends up dead. That's not really a gang-related right. murder, but then it kind of is because the, the, the person having the firearm to begin with is as a result of their role in a criminal organization. So, you know, there are a lot of nuances, um, but overall, people should be concerned. And I think that's the point of releasing this data yesterday is to show that we have a problem. Uh, most of the weapons used in gang-related murders are firearms. Uh, certainly, we've seen that in B.C., uh, you think about 2021, we had some very high-profile murders, uh, most infamously probably the airport shooting of Carm Greywall. Oh, right. You know, that, like, big public shooting. Todd Gauenberg was shot to death at a gym in Langley, uh, you know, as little kids were arriving to a daycare. Yes. Carp was gunned down in Cole Harbour. Now, there was a charge laid in that case and a conviction. Uh, so, you know, that was one with a successful outcome. But another point in this report is that it takes much longer to solve gang-related murders. Uh, The stat that was used was within 100 days, only 27% of gang-related murders have uh, been solved. By contrast, three-quarters of other homicides unrelated to gangs are solved within the first 100 days. So again, that's a pattern that we see in BC. I mean, I could name cases that have... Uh, That go back years. Uh, Very high profile cases at the time where no one has ever been charged. Uh, Very frustrating for both the family of the victim and the community at large.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like how far in the investigation do you have to get before they go, this is gang related and therefore they put it into that category? As you were saying, I'm sure there's quite a few that they haven't gotten that far yet.
4: Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And, you know, I mean, the exercise is to illustrate a problem. It doesn't mean that, you know, every single uh, murder that occurs has been classified correctly. They do the best they can with the data they get from police agencies. Uh, But when we were compiling a big series several years ago on unsolved homicides, you know, we really learned a lot about how they do those statistics. And, you know, some frustration on behalf of some BC policing agencies, because for example in um i believe it was toronto uh they will call a murder solved or resolved Uh, if the suspect has been killed or something has happened to the suspect, well, they don't do that in BC, so the cases stay open, right? So Mm. even the way, you know, they decide when a case is solved is different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It's just something, you know, people have to keep in mind. I mean, Stats Canada does the very best it can with the data it gets, but it's not all compiled the same way.
1: Right. Well, I learned something this morning, Kim. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it.
4: Thanks very much for having me on. Have a good
1: day. That's Kim Boland, crime reporter for The Vancouver Sun, helping us break down this report from Statistics Canada showing the national homicide rate going up for the third year. Nearly a quarter of the killings in 2021 connected to gangs. But as Kim points out, the the category is slightly different province to province. And you would think, well, BC must be at the top of that list in terms of gang-related deaths. Turns out we are not. Saskatchewan had both the highest rate of homicides and the highest rate of gang-related killings. Manitoba was the second highest on that.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We have an avian flu problem here in BC. In fact, avian flu has been detected at seven commercial poultry farms in the Fraser Valley. And this particular strain, which is an H5N1 strain of avian influenza, is highly pathogenic. It can cause serious disease and death in birds, and there's a lot of efforts being made right now to try to get this thing under control. Well, joining us now to tell us more about this is Noel Ritson bennett Western Area Chief of the National Emergency Operations Centre for Avian Influenza. Noel, thanks for being with us.
7: Good morning. Thanks, Jenny.
1: So what is the situation like right now at these farms?
7: Uh, so, So As you, as you indicated, we've, we've identified uh, seven farms in the past week or so. Uh, we are in the process of, of completing humane depopulation on those farms. And so there's a bit of a queue, but we have those sort of lined up. In, in and that, in, that, in the scope of the next couple of days, we'll be completing that depopulation of, of those birds on those farms and then, and then working with uh, producers to, to get them back and running up into normal production.
1: Oh, wow. How fast does this particular strain
7: spread, Noel? So really we're seeing unprecedented uh, spread ac- across the country. Um, that, that spread has been associated with migratory birds. Um, and, and so as we've we've gone through the fall migration, as those birds are moving south, we've, we've seen an influx of, of cases. And then in particular in British Columbia in the past week or so, we've really started to see the cases pick up in British Columbia. So um what we're we're not seeing uh, what we would say lateral spreads. So we're not seeing spread from farm to farm per se. Most of the most of the incursions that we're seeing are, are thought to be point source in, introductions from migratory birds.
1: Right. So if it's migratory birds that are the problem, is there anything a farm can do to protect itself?
7: Certainly, we encourage them to practice strong biosecurity and and. and The poultry industry in British Columbia and the rest of Canada certainly is well aware of that, and they're they're doing the best they can to to do that. Unfortunately, we we don't have, as you said, it's within the migratory birds, and there's very little we can do to control them. So the best that the producers can do is to to enhance their biosecurity and and try to limit contact with with, uh, wild birds.
1: Right. So is this normal for this time of year, Noel? Do we get usually cases because of the migratory bird pattern at this time of year?
7: So historically, yeah. I mean, we. this is the time of year when we have seen cases, in particular in British Columbia. In the fall, um, we get sort of cool, damp weather, and, and that is good for virus survivability in the environment. Um, and then it typically does correspond with that migration. And, and we, we saw it. I think we, I spoke to you in the spring, you know, we were seeing some cases then. Right. Things tapered off in the summer, and now we're seeing it again as, as those wild birds are migrating.
1: Is this just, is this a Canadian problem? Are we seeing this in the United States as well? Because I noticed that there's still no kind of movement of poultry products right across the border.
7: So they are experiencing widespread infections, pardon me, in in the U.S. as well. Europe has seen it, uh, a a significant number of cases, and and again, throughout the world. really.
1: Right. Is it this particular strain that is causing these increased issues?
7: That's right. We have seen this strain has, has, is particularly infective, uh, pathogenic within domestic birds, but it also seems to be novel within wild birds, and so it's spreading throughout the, the wild birds as well. And, and as they migrate and, and commingle with each other, it, it tends to travel throughout the, you know, their migratory pathways.
1: Well, This is a tough go then for poultry farmers. Noel, is there any indication that this might impact supply?
7: Uh, again, I don't know at this point. It's not really my, my place to, to, to say I think that would be a question more uh, appropriately put to the, the poultry producers themselves. Um, I'm just more concerned with trying to deal with the disease.
1: Right, but it sounds like you are awfully busy these days. So right now, are we talking about a particular area, of the Fraser Valley? Are we able to kind of lock it down there?
7: So, yeah, certainly within BC, we're, we're seeing a significant number of cases in the Fraser Valley, and I'll apologize, I'm I'm not I'm from Calgary, so um, but I think sort of in that Abbotsford area, right, in in, in around there is where we have a, 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 the predominance of uh, poultry facilities within in the Lower Mainland, and so there is a, a significant density of, of, of poultry farms within that sort of Abbotsford area and on either side of Abbotsford, east and west.
1: All right. Well, I hope things improve. Noel, thanks so much for that this morning.
7: No worries. Thank you very much.
1: Appreciate your time. Noel Ritson-Bennett, the Western Area Chief of the National Emergency Operations Centre for Avian Influenza. So they've got, what, seven farms? Seven commercial poultry farms now out in the Fraser Valley that have this highly pathogenic h5n1 strain of avian influenza and so that just means they have to cull the flock essentially uh start over again in those farms which is just absolutely devastating there but there's nothing they can do these are migratory birds that are bringing this avian influenza into the area so that is so incredibly challenging right now and right across western canada you're seeing this uh, into the united states you are seeing this too it is an ongoing issue
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, let's walk down memory lane. Shall we remember the summer of 1986? I know our Raji Silhall does, and she's at Science World this morning, also one of her happy places. Good morning, Raji.
3: Hi, Simi. For me, Science World has always, since I was a little kid, been better than Disneyland, so I'm definitely in my happy place. And Science World is doing this amazing thing. They are celebrating 35 years of their existence with a new set of merch that is going to take everyone back to that year, that iconic year for myself. It's uh, kind of one of my first memories is being at, Sci- at Science World for Expo. That's Expo 86. And I've got Jen Cook here. She's the creative director of Science World. Just to tell us a bit about the history of Science World and Expo 86.
0: Hi, ah, yeah. So uh, Science World has existed in the Dome for over 30 years, um, and really the Dome exists entirely because of Expo 86. It was built as Expo Centre originally at the heart of the fair, um, and it was only ever intended to be a temporary structure. Um, so we wanted to celebrate that history with a exclusively designed line of march.
3: Okay, so let
0: me tell you, Simi, about this merch, because
3: I'm having a major fangirl moment. So it's taking me back, big time nostalgia here. There's the iconic mascot, of course, you remember Expo Ernie. He's got that bubble head, uh, he was kind of a, a robot-looking figure to me, I thought he meant that the robots were taking over, and I was very excited about that as a kid. Um, and then that iconic bubble font, right, for the Expo 86 logo. And so, Simi, this is all over a bunch of different really cool merch just in time for the holidays, I might add. So they've got t-shirts, they've got uh, this wicked jacket uh, with the huge Expo 86 logo on the back. They have a very purposeful uh, tote bag. They have a hat. Now, I kind of feel like getting every single piece here for friends and family for Christmas, but also For myself, Uh, because for me, Simi, this uh, this logo, Expo eighty six logo, and also the Expo Ernie mascot are kind of the first uh, the the first symbols I remember from my childhood. They just have stood the test of time. But we haven't really seen Expo eighty six logo out and about in society and Vancouver culture. I feel on a regular basis. Like, have you seen Expo Ernie around? It's been a few years, right?
1: For me? Yes, absolutely. few years. I've already ordered my cup. You can tell them at Science World, I've already ordered (laughs) stuff, and I am waiting delivery for this. I'm curious to know, though, can they tell us about the process that it took to kind of make Science World permanent? Like, how did they decide to turn that from temporary into a permanent structure?
3: That's such a great question, Jen. How did
0: Science World become a permanent structure after Expo '86? Uh, well, it was a team of really dedicated folks, led by Barbara Brink, um, who saw the need for a more permanent science center in Vancouver. Um, prior to being in the Dome, we were actually on Granville Street, um, operating as ASCC Science World Society. Um, and so when the expo ended, um, they, Barbara specifically saw this amazing opportunity to find a permanent home and really embed science education in Vancouver. Wow, that's so fascinating. And how do you hope that this uh, merch is going to keep the memory of XYZ6 alive for people? Uh, Well, as an elder millennial, um, I can say that it definitely brings up a lot of memories for me. Um, And really, we just want to sort of inspire uh, or keep keep top of mind the inspiration for Expo um, and use it to launch uh, support for our future at Science World. Um, It being a temporary structure, we're always looking to fundraise as a nonprofit and to support our programming around the province. Um, So we hope that this goes over really well and people will be rocking this merch around town.
3: Yeah, I can definitely see uh, future lines coming out of Expo 86, too. And Simi, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if you hung on to any of the original Expo 86 merch, but my parents encouraged their five kids, including myself, to hang on to our passports. So one of my first memories is, I don't remember Expo 86 itself, but I remember holding a blue passport, and every page had a different kind of stamp on it. Did you hang on to any of your Expo 86 I had merch? one of
1: those. I had one those for sure. I have my seasons pass still. Um, I've got lots of pictures from there, oh. um, and I know a lot of people collected pins. Is this is this something that they're going to use at Science World as kind of fundraising to help them make sure the structure is maintained and things that they can improve upon? So
3: the effort in selling this merch is a fundraising one, and it's going to go towards their steam program, uh, and so they're hoping to raise money for that. And you mentioned those pins. Those pins were iconic. Uh, they're actually going to have some of those as well. They'll be, be available online and in for uh, purchase in store as well. Now, you mentioned you already went online and found a mug for yourself, which is fantastic. Uh, but if, uh, if anyone has time and wants to check the stuff out in person, it's really lovely to see the stuff and to hold it. It's all very good quality. There's a, a poster that I don't know the right terminology for the kind of pressing that they did for it but it's uh like it's kind of got three-dimensional typography on it it's really lovely so for the graphic design fans out there i think that one is going to be appreciated a lot too
1: okay great so where can people find this uh merchandise if they want to buy it and how long will it be available
3: that's a great question okay so you can check it out online on science world's website for sure you can come in store
0: uh in person and see it and jen um how long is this going to be available Uh, It'll be available indefinitely. Hopefully, it'll be a permanent part of um, the merchandise that we sell here.
3: Okay, and are there any plans to do further lines, like maybe
0: a a 90s interpretation, some neon in there to uh, take this uh, merch further? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, uh, if folks love this line, uh, we hope to launch another line in the spring that's a little bit more vibrant, maybe some neon. Um, If you would love to see a specific type of expo merch, you can always reach out to us and let us know what you'd like to see.
3: And then, Jen, I'm so curious to hear uh, what the younger kids think about Expo Ernie. Like, does he resonate with them? I know, obviously, he does with uh, people my age,
0: us geriatric millennials and older, because we remember from our childhood. But what about the younger kids? I think we'll see. I mean, Ernie is such a cute design and he's such a friendly character that I feel like this line will help embed it in their minds as well, even though they weren't there for the original run.
3: Yeah, and Jen was also telling me earlier, Simi, uh, just that they, when they were playing with the different designs of Expo Ernie, there were different versions of him, including one where Expo Ernie carried a little briefcase with him. I would I have that. loved to see that yes, one. I do, you remember do remember
1: that. I do remember that, <laughs> so Rod, cute. Roger, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate that. That is our Raji Selhal. She's done at Science World this morning. You can check this merchandise out, too. It's so great. Uh, Scienceworld.ca, and you can go to their shop section and see it. I've already ordered my mug. I love all that Expo 86 stuff. And I know it has great memories for lots of people, too, because people have been writing me this morning and sharing that. In fact, Linda just wrote me and says, incredible, yesterday I was just talking to a co-worker about Expo 86. She was joking about dancing on a table at our Christmas party. She did not, but it made her reminisce about Expo. Linda was 22 years old and with a season's pass and a great group of friends and they saw every exhibition, pavilion, concert and oh, loved the bars too. Yeah, that sounds like everybody's expo experience for sure, Linda. If you want to share yours with us, please do. Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I so reading a story on CKNW.com this morning about something called forced financing. And the story was of a couple who'd gone in to buy a vehicle and they wanted to pay cash for this vehicle and they were told that they couldn't. The dealership told them, no, that price is only available on this vehicle if you finance it. You have to finance part of it. And they thought, well, wait a minute, how can this be allowed? It is something called forced financing and there are reports of this happening so what can you do to protect yourself how can you argue with a dealership if you come across this and say no no you can't do this well joining us now is george Inney, who's the executive director of the automobile protection association george thank you for being here good morning have you heard of cases like this happening of forced financing
8: uh yes i think we have to make uh also a distinction between someone showing up with um bills like money in a briefcase or a bag.
1: Yes. In those
8: cases, dealers are uh, subject uh, to some requirements for money laundering. And, um, you know, they could legitimately refuse to take payment that way or ask some very close questions. But that's not the sort of complaint we're talking about. We're talking about someone that uh, wants to pay not with actual bills but doesn't want vehicle financing. So they have an actual account that will be uh, providing the payment. And they're told basically, um, you have to take the financing, and this is thrown in at the very end after they've found the vehicle they want and they're ready to buy. It's not uh, something that's told to them up front or that you'll see in the ad
1: right Is this even allowed? Can a dealership do this?
8: It's deceptive because it increases the price to you so it's a especially if you're in a province like b c requires that all the costs involved in your purchase be listed. And uh, that would have to be a, a financing charge. Minimum six months at 7.5% would have to be written into the, into the ad. You can't just bring that on a customer after. I'm, I mean, you can because there isn't much oversight. But you shouldn't be. And before COVID, some dealers did this. They were a small bunch. If you are nod in a wink, And we say, listen, we get the conditions to so give you a lower everyday price we understand you're going to be paying some interest because the bank's got wise to this. They won't allow you to pay the, I mean, uh, the, the, they won't, they will charge the dealer back his commission if the loan is paid off too early. So some banks require that you hold the loan, most banks now at least six months, a couple are up to a year. So the dealer would say, look, I'll cut you a check for the interest payments you're going to be making. And then at, at six months and one day, pay the loan. And, um, I I would say, you know, in that case, the the so-called victim, the bank, of course, they know how the game works, and they were prepared to live with that. But now, it's taken on a new proportion. It was not offering the whole for the interest, and interest rates have jumped quite a bit.
1: Right. So understandably, a lot of people don't want to finance something, right? They want to go in and maybe they've saved the money or they've sold a previous vehicle and they want to pay cash. But I guess they're going in and they're, they think, oh, this is a great advertised price. This is the price. What No, kind there's
8: of- no great advertised price these days, but this That's is true. the advertised price. And after they've thrown on admin fees and uh, to a certain degree jerked you around, on On other charges, this is the last one that they'll spring on you. Oh, and by the way, sorry, we're not prepared to take a wire transfer from you. you're going to have to sign a loan at this higher interest rate that pays us a commission.
1: right. What can a person do at that point George like what is what repercussions are are available to us?
8: Well, uh, you can complain. You should advise the regulator from what I saw um, so far across Canada, only Quebec. Has taken kind of a robust position on that. It, they, you you cannot require extra charges that are not in your ad. And um, the other provinces have similar legislation, but they're not really applying it from what we can see to this situation. Uh, the other thing you could do it really, I mean, if the dealer is a sort of semi straight up, what they'll tell you is, okay, listen, we you know you're going to end up paying seven or eight hundred bucks of extra interest, so we'll give you a break on the price. Just don't pay the loan back for six months. That was a situation APA could live with. I mean, it's still not a legit ad, but um, there was a workaround. But we're not seeing that right now. So, I mean, if you you did it and paid the loan off early, most of them are holding a charge on your credit card, which they will run through. Uh, If you're the type that's litigious, uh, I guess you could take them on over it or sue them uh, after the fact. Most people just take it on the chin because they don't want to be at the back of a new line waiting six months for another vehicle.
1: Well, that's the thing, though, isn't it, George, is that right now it feels like because of the shortage of vehicles out there that these dealerships have people over a barrel.
8: In a word, yes, they do.
1: Well, that's terrible, then. like, And do they also think that we're going to forget about this, like the next time we need a vehicle? Because, you know, times will change, and people aren't going to forget
8: this. Well, actually, they think we will, and most of the time we do that's the real truth i I would like it if the regulators would feel they were beholden enough to the public that they could resolve some of these issues but i don't see it right now you know they give them puny little fines a couple thousand bucks you pay it it's basically a parking ticket and you pay it two years after you ran your crooked ad that doesn't help what you would need is license suspensions we saw this during COVID. we visited dealers covertly for some of the regulators And what we discovered is a phenomenal level of compliance with COVID requirements, 100% signage, 90 plus percent wearing masks, uh, sanitizer everywhere, cars being cleaned. The dealers who haven't after, you know, dozens of decades learned how to run an honest ad were suddenly experts in public health. The reason was if you had a COVID outbreak in your dealership, you know, more than two or three people got sick. Your sales department was closed. And you couldn't reopen until everybody tested, often twice. You'd be out of, out not doing business for two weeks. Now, if that was the consequence of running a crooked ad, advertising would improve. But the current situation, there's really very little hope. Uh, until the vehicle supply situation improves dramatically, we're looking for a couple of years at least, uh, at least another year and a half, until that, that day happens, I don't think you're going to see much improvement by car dealers.
1: So it's just not enough consequences then. And so many customers, people wanting new cars, these dealers feel like they can get away with it, so they're going to do it. You got it. That is the way it goes, isn't it? George, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. You're welcome. Appreciate that. George Enney is the executive director of the Automobile Protection Association, talking about something called forced financing. Now, I would be very curious to hear from you if you have experienced this while car shopping. There's a story on our website, cknw.com, about a couple where this happened to them. They thought they had a great price. They thought they had found their vehicle. They were going to pay cash for it. Right. And they go in there and they're all ready to do that, sign the paperwork, and they're all of a sudden told, oh, no, 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 you have a requirement of this is that you have to pay this price and you have to get it financed. Well, of course, they they want you to finance it because they're going to make way more money if you finance it. Right. But they are forcing people to finance a vehicle because they can essentially, according to what George just told us there. So have you experienced something like this? If you just want to share your car shopping experience too, absolutely. Share it with me, simi at cknw.com. It is tough out there because the availability of new vehicles has been incredibly challenging. So yeah, there are situations like this happening out there. So bring those to our attention and then we can talk more about them.